the promise of the gospel is when we welcome the stranger in our lives, um, God will show up in ways that always surprise us. Welcome to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm so thankful that you're here. Before we get started in today's episode, I wanted to make a brief appeal to your patronage. This podcast is supported completely and 100% by you. If you have in any way felt moved or challenged or impacted or enjoyed what you've heard, please consider going to our Patreon page. You can find the link in the show notes. You can also find that link at our website, uh, can I say this at church.com, and click on the Patreon button. Your donation in any amount is so helpful, and I am greatly appreciative for it. My guest today is Dr. Richard Beck. Richard is the professor and the chair of the Department of Psychology at Abilene Christian University. He's the author of Unclean, The Authenticity of Faith, The Slavery of Death, Reviving Old Scratch, and his most recent book, the topic of our conversation today, is called Stranger God. Richard's research covers topics such as psychology, profanity, disgust, and contempt. Richard also has a popular blog called Experimental Theology. I would encourage you to reach that out. Uh, It's a fantastic blog, and you'll find him discussing anything from Johnny Cash to hell to... Scooby-Doo, it's, it's, it's very fun. In today's conversation, we discuss finding God in the other and at the same time recognizing how we struggle to do so and knowing that ahead of time, how we can lean into being Jesus and, and more importantly, seeing Jesus in those that are marginalized those that we deem as, quote, less than. It is a fantastic conversation. I greatly hope you enjoy it. So welcome back to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Beck. Uh, Dr. Beck, thank you so much for taking the time out of your um, your Christmas season to be on with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. So I um, I just recently finished reading Stranger God uh, about a week ago. Um, enjoyed it greatly. And so I'd like to discuss that a little bit here, here in a few minutes. But before that, I'm certain that there will be some people that are that are either unfamiliar with you uh, or unfamiliar with your work. So can you give us just a, in brief kind of kind of how you became to be doing what you're doing today and, and then what led you to write Stranger God? Yeah, of course. Um, I am a professor of psychology, actually. Some people mistaken me think I'm a theologian. Um, but uh, as a psychologist, I study psychology of religion, and so a lot of my published work had been about the interface of psychological processes and Christian faith and practice. And, um, and a large focus of my uh, research has been on social psychology, the way uh, the way we deal with uh, different kind of groups of people and social psychological obstacles towards hospitality and welcome. And so the very first book I wrote was called Unclean, and, and that kind of um, set up a kind of a trajectory of writing lots of different books about the integration of psychology and um, and Christianity. And Stranger God is is kind of a popular version of Unclean, um, kind of a tour through the social psychological challenges we face in welcoming um, others and um, and some practical insights about how we might kind of cultivate more open hearts uh, towards people. Nice. Yeah, I realized that as, as I got halfway through, I was like, this seems 
pretty familiar to unclean and it wasn't until the back half that it, that it deviated, uh, tremendously. Um, so, so there are a lot of, one of the things I like about your book, there are just a lot of open, there's a lot of openness, a lot of honesty in you personally and personal stories. Um, and, and I'd be remiss to not, so there's a portion of your book that you speak about Texas and, and being that I'm from Texas, it, it brought me back. And there was a, a portion there where you spoke about Tejano music, uh, in your car and, and other things that you do. Um, I actually had to take a time out to, to refrain and, and, and listen to a little music. It, it took me back. I, they, yeah. don't, they don't play that in Virginia. So, um, <laughs> but I missed it. Um, and so the, in a nutshell, what is your goal that you're trying to accomplish with Stranger God as opposed to Unclean? Well, I think un- Unclean was more um, of a kind of academic attempt to explain um, the obstacles, the affectional and emotional obstacles to hospitality, mainly through the, the lens of disgust and contamination psychology. Um, Stranger God uh, widens the view um, and doesn't just focus on um, feelings of interpersonal revulsion or disgust, but also uh, focuses on things like fear. And I think that's really relevant at this point in America, the way our our inhospitality um, is flowing out of anxiety and fear. And so I try to widen the emotional territory and, and, and survey pretty extensively all the different kind of affectional triggers that we have from fear to disgust to contempt and um, cast that bigger vision. The other thing about unclean is that it doesn't really uh, get into practical applications. It's just very diagnostic. And so as I went around talking about that material, churches would ask for practical solutions, as they should. I, I would finish my material, and they'd say, fine, hospitality is hard for us. We're going to run into all these social psychological triggers, so what are we going to do to fix them? And in the early days, I didn't have a really – great answer for that. So, the, so the, I think the big draw of Stranger God over Unclean is that it tries to offer some very practical daily kinds of habits um, to to help us widen the circle of our affections, um, to be more hospitable to people. Because the big theme of hospitality, at least in Scripture, is how God comes to us when we welcome strangers. And there's that big theme all the way through the gospel of how Jesus kind of appears in disguise or incognito. So Matthew 25, you know, I was in prison and you visited me. I was homeless and you gave me shelter. Or when Jesus puts a child in front of his followers and says, whenever you welcome one of these, the least of these, my brothers, you welcome me. And so, um, so that, that's, that's the, the big take home of Stranger God is the more practical call um, that I don't think Unclean um, gets at. And Unclean is a great book, and, and some really nerdy people love Unclean, um, but some people find it hard going because of its more academic slant. So Stranger God is also just more accessible, and it, it has a lot more stories in it. And so it's a quick read, um, but I hope an impactful one. Yeah, I would agree as a non-academic I did find it e- personally. I found it easier to read. Not that the other one is is not easy. Just um, this this was just easier to read in smaller pieces uh, with with without having to take so many notes. Um, can I? I want to dig in a little bit. So you talk about disgust and contamination, um, in in a, in a way that most churches I don't think do, uh, and and how that affects hospitality. So can you kind of go into, 
um, how disgust, I guess, psychologically works and how that correlates to fear and contempt and, and I guess revulsion would be a good word. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, that might seem like a weird thing to talk about, you know, disgust psychology, like, what? like I don't feel disgusted by people, but if you, if you ponder it, I mean, I think if your listeners think about it and, and you think of all the adjectives we use and throw at people who, who we find uncomfortable, um, you'll notice a lot of those are kind of disgust related words. We call people trash. We say somebody is uh, revolting. Um, they're icky. They give us the, the creeps. They're slimy. And so we use the idiom of uh, revulsion and contamination. Um, somebody's a rotten person, uh, we even would say. So we know that we use adjectives to push people away. And we see even children play these contamination games on the playground where uh, I called it cooties when I was growing up, where if somebody touched you and they had the cooties, they passed on this sort of virus and if you pass touch somebody else you pass it on so children naturally seem to reason about social relations in the idiom of clean and unclean and we typically obviously associate our group with the clean and the pure and the holy and anybody on the outside is somebody who is the unwashed and that's just another adjective we use the unwashed masses the people that are not as pure and clean as we are and so you kind of quickly realize if you reflect on it that we reason about social groups in this idiom of purity. And I think religious people are particularly prone to this because of our kind of moral sensibilities and how morality is understood as being in a state of cleanliness or contamination. And sin is um, uh, the thing that produces that contamination. What that means for, as a psychological, uh, in the psychological way, is that when we reason about people in the idiom of contamination, feelings, interpersonal feelings of revulsion uh, get pulled up and used and then directed towards other people. And, um, and that those feelings of disgust and contamination are um, obstacles to welcoming people. And, and this is obvious to any reader of the Gospels. You see the Pharisees stepping away from tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes as unclean. Um, they've erected kind of a moral quarantine against those people. And they're radically inhospitable. And Jesus' praxis was to break bread, to sit down and eat with um, the unclean. And, and so that's one of the big fights in the Gospels is religious people, the Pharisees, who define holiness as quarantine from the unclean. And then a Jesus who does something very counterintuitive, very emotionally strange in the sense that he achieves holiness through hospitality, and I mean, and I mean that it's emotionally strange to us because that's not, it's not intuitive to us. The, the psychology of disgust, when we see somebody who is a, um, a moral contaminant, a sinner, um, embracing them, breaking bread with them, doesn't seem to be the obvious route toward holiness, and yet that's what Jesus calls us to do. So Stranger God is this prolonged meditation on all of those emotional triggers and how we fail to to uh, cross over in the hospitality the way Jesus did. So that's just disgust and revulsion. And, and the, other, the other feelings follow quickly after that. Obviously, if you are afraid uh, of somebody, that that's a trigger. And I think mm -hmm. you see that in America. Lots of people are very anxious. Um, about all kinds of things, from terrorism to economics, and um, 
that those fears make us um, worried about strangers. Um, and contempt is just another version of disgust. It's it's a but it just is hierarchical. It's disgust kind of directed downward towards uh, people who are beneath or or below us. And so psychologists know that disgust and, and um, contempt are very similar emotions. Um, it's just contempt is more hierarchical. So I use contempt um, to kind of wrap this bit up um, to kind of get people on the hook in mm-hmm. a way that disgust might not. You know, some people might say I don't feel disgusted by people. And I go, okay, fair enough. Um, you probably they'll feel um, that uh, people are uh, being ridiculous or awful. Like, like if you just survey your feelings when you scroll through your social media feed, you're going to feel. Most of us feel lots of anger yeah. and scorn for people, and I, that usually gets everybody on on the same page. Like, okay, I, I can see how I have some affectional, emotional triggers towards certain groups of people, and um, social media is a place where a lot of that triggering happens. Yeah. I've heard it said, and I don't know who said it. I'm sure I read it that when you're scrolling through your social media feeds, you should be 10% angry when you do it. So for fear of being in an echo chamber and, and never learning to grow or to, or to see a different viewpoint. I don't know if that's truthful or not. Um, I try to do it, but then I find I can't be on there very long uh, at all. Yeah. So can you, so I think, and maybe America's different because of our Puritan back roots. So I feel like scripturally, you'll find a lot of churches and a lot of Christians making that case on uncleanliness because of the Old Testament. Um, and, and they forget that Jesus seemed to not really mind that too much. So do you, why do you feel like that is? Or, 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 or does the Old Testament, do those purity laws, uh, you know, where you know, this person's unclean because this happened or this person is unclean because they touched a dead bone or whatever. Are there different levels of purity or is it all just you're clean or unclean and, 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 and that is what it is? Well, I think the scripture is, is complicated about on that. And, and I think one of the struggles that we have is when we have a kind of a, what some people call flat hermeneutic where we just kind of like just set all these scriptures side by side and, um, uh, and, and read them of, read them, uh, in kind of a, a proof text kind of way. E- yeah. Everything's kind of treated equally, but there, there's a, but one of the things you'll notice in the old Testament itself is this anxiety about the Levitical purity codes. So on the one hand, we understand what the Levitical purity codes are trying to do. They're trying to create a people that are distinct from the surrounding cultures, um, Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests, but we're to be kind of a witness to God's reign and rule in the world. So that so we so we get that. Um, but then there's the in the Old Testament itself, there's these anxieties and these worries about the Levitical tradition, and that usually those concerns are usually raised by the prophetic tradition. And so the you you read things in the prophets saying like, you know, I don't really need all your sacrifices because I own every cattle. I own all the cattle on the hillside. I'm not, I don't need that. Or in Isaiah, um, I despise your religious feasts and festivals because the true fast is justice and care for the oppressed. Mm. So in, in the Old Testament itself, there is a, there is a dialectic, there is a tension between the two. Um, and, and, and so you can't read them flatly. There is a tension there. And, and Jesus inherits that tension in the gospels. 
Um, the Pharisees kind of represent that Levitical tradition. They, they were a revivalist group to kind of call people back to kind of a pure um, life of Torah obedience. Um, even though they're not in the scripture, we know at the same time there was the Essenes and the Qumran uh, communities, but they fled. You know, they flee out into the wilderness to kind of maintain their purity as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jesus, though, um, as a teacher of the Torah, does something really different. And, and he um, seems to privilege the prophetic critique over um, the Levitical tradition. And so, what do you mean by bread, what do you mean by prophetical pr- critique? Well, for example, when Jesus is breaking bread with tax collectors and sinners in Matthew 9, and the Pharisees critique him from a purity perspective. They say, listen, you know, you're, you're, you're making contact with the unclean. And when Jesus would touch lepers, again, he's violating the Levitical code there. He is, he's, doing, he's moving into a state of uncleanliness and contamination by touching lepers and by eating with sinners. And and they critique him from the Levitical perspective. But then Jesus quotes the prophets. He quotes Hosea, actually. And he says, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so there's this tension there. Sacrifice is that Levitical impulse to achieve, say, purity. But Jesus says God wants mercy more than that. And it's the same kind of thing that, that comes out in his fights about the Sabbath keeping, Um so the, is the goal of Sabbath keeping to to use it as a ritual to set yourself apart as a holy person, or is the Sabbath um, a space in your in our lives to do good to heal? And Jesus again privileges mercy there. So all that to say is, yeah, there is a purity impulse that comes out of Leviticus, but the prophets push back against it and make it a little bit more complicated. And I think. It, one way of reading Jesus is his siding with the prophets um, in that critique, or at least reframing. He, he, and I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's not saying purity is not important. He's redefining what pure looks like. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is a holy person, the holiest person who ever lived, and he is embracing lepers in the unclean, then that's what holy people do. Holy people don't run out to the suburbs and live in gated communities and create their own little, you know, evangelical bubbles. <laughs> right. Like that's not what the purity impulse is supposed to do. Yeah. The purity impulse is supposed to move towards the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the lepers of the world, because that's what Jesus says a holy person should do. So it's not that he's saying purity is irrelevant. He's redefining our imaginations of what purity is. And my, my point, stranger God, is that, that revisioning that he's trying to accomplish is not natural for us. It's very counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense that you would run toward sinners to be holy. And that was the Pharisees' problem with Jesus, um, is that he achieved holiness through this really weird approach rather than avoidance. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, people still get angry when you do that. You'll see so many... Well, you see, so many, so many of the famous saints and and um and whatnot, they do that, and people aspire to it, and then no one does it. I want to circle back to what you said a minute ago. So you talked about some people in, in ancient biblical times would would leave their community and, and kind of go off into the desert to remain pure, and 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 then you alluded to it again, and people will live in their gated communities or their their church doesn't seem very inclusive. So why do you feel like some people? 
are are more concerned with their tribe than they are justice, or they're more concerned with, um, to use a, a quote that you use in the book, is that black guy in a hoodie going to hurt me as opposed to how can I love that guy? Why do you feel like we do that? Um, I think it's just a human condition. I think this is where the psychologist to me um, steps in. Um, I, the human condition is that our minds are pretty much our default is towards um, a kind of a tribalistic mindset. Humans are very are, – we're naturally wired to um, identify an in-group, our, our, our tribe, and to perceive anybody on the outside of that tribe as a stranger, and we view them with wariness. And we can argue about where that comes from um, and why we're that way, but that seems to be our default and um, I think there's ample evidence of that as you look around and see all the tribes that divide us in the world, from race to nationality to religion to um, sexual orientation to politics to um, class. I mean, just the tribalism is at a fever pitch, it seems like, right now. So that's what human, humanity looks like just naturally. That just That's our default. And so what happens, I think, is – and on, in that stranger guy, I call that the kind of our social autopilot. Like, if you just go on social autopilot, if you just walk out of your door, you're going to find yourself attracted to people very similar to you and very suspicious and worried of people who are very different from you. Yeah. And that happens for everybody. That's just – so to me, that's just – there, we don't need any deep explanation for why that is. That's just the beginning. That's just the raw material you're working with. That's what's sitting in our pews, right? Just normal human, normal human being who tend to see the world tribally. Um, and maybe, maybe there, there's some, you know, good reason why we do that. Maybe it helps us survive, you know, in a in a very scary world. I don't know. Yeah. My point though is, is that the reason why Christians don't move out of that is because these are emotional issues rather than intellectual issues. And so you can hear a sermon on the Good Samaritan, um, but that's, that's information. Like, like our problems in following Jesus are not educational anymore. Everybody knows the answers that are going to be on the final exam, right? Yeah. When you hear the story of the Good Samaritan, <laughs> yeah. you know you're supposed to help, yet we don't. Well, why? Because it's not an intellectual problem. It's an affectional issue. It's an emotional issue. And emotions are hard to change. Um, if you've ever felt depressed and somebody tells you to say, you know, to cheer up, well, you know, that's not very effective advice. You just can't flip off your sadness like that. And, and the same thing I'm arguing is the same goes for our feelings about human beings. If you have feelings towards somebody, so just think about political opponents. That's like a simple example. Uh, it, 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 you, people have very strong feelings about politics. Well, well, if you're really angry at that, those people, I just can't walk up to you and say, love them. You know, like you just can't go from one emotional register to the other that quickly. It, it, it's, it's not like a matter of choosing. So how are you going to become hospitable to people who really trigger you emotionally? Or in your example, people you're afraid of. Um, and so, so the reason we do all that is just human psychology. Um, we have an in-group, out-group psychology that's kind of our natural social autopilot, and it's going to take a lot of intentional, deliberate work to to uh, to overcome that psychology. 
I've heard you, I want to circle back to, to fear and contempt and discuss, and, and I've heard you say it before. So, so humor me. I'm sure you've, you've answered this question a lot. Um, but you give two separate examples and, and for fear of Godwin's law, um, I, I'd like you to dig in a bit on how, when people are not in our tribe or, or not, I guess to, to microcosm it, not in our family, you know, not my wife and my kids, uh, even so far as my neighbor, how, uh, you've spoken about how anything outside of my personal moral influence becomes just nasty or, or disgusting or, or mistrusted. And, and you relay that to how, how fear of contamination can be displaced from object A to object B and, and you use uh, you know, Hitler's sweater uh, or, or a Dixie cup to do that. And so choosing either one of those, can you dig into that a bit? And I was, I was talking with a friend about it and he's like, what did you say? And then I've come to ask other people, just <laughs> friends um, about the Dixie cup, including my wife. And they all look at me like I have lost my mind. Like, why would I ever do that? But they also can't tell me why it's wrong. <laughs> Um, and I, yeah. I can't either. So, <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So, so for your, for those that, yeah, your listeners will want to read stranger God to get into those examples, but I use, I use a couple of examples from, um, discussed research, um, to illustrate, um, the power of emotions in, um, in, in this conversation, which is kind of what I've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the Hitler sweater example is psychologists bring people in the laboratory and they show them a ratty old sweater and they tell them it's Hitler's sweater. Hitler once owned it and wore it, um, and then they invite them uh, to put it on. Uh, and most people decline um, or at least would feel really uncomfortable to put it on. And then you ask them, well, why is that? Like why would you feel uncomfortable putting it on? Why would you feel uncomfortable taking it home and hanging it in your closet? And, and then the answer is we feel like somehow Hitler's evil has contaminated the sweater. Like it, it has a moral virus in it. And, uh, and so we don't want to touch it. Now we know that that's unreasonable, that, there, that morality and evil isn't uh, you know, a, a, a contaminant that can rub off into fabric and right. then rub off onto you. And yet, again, this goes back to the psychology here. We tend to reason about morality in the idiom of contamination. Even though we know it's illogical, our emotions cause us to push that away. I am revolted by that sweater. So the obvious extension of the Hitler sweater example is um, if we reason about morality in the idiom of disgust, then if we see somebody who we consider to be a sinner or engaged in sinful practices, an immoral person or even an evil person, then obviously proximity with them, contact with them, becomes this kind of source of interpersonal you know, revulsion. And my point here is that even though we know a proximity with an, an unsavory or a moral person isn't going to put us at moral risk, we, we act as if we do. We feel it. And so the Hitler sweater example is just trying to point out to us the degree to which our emotions trump our minds. Um, we can't make a logical case for why we feel the way we do. We just feel that way. Yeah. And, and it's the same with people. We, 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 we just have these feelings and we can't account for them, but we act on them. Um, the Dixie cup example is, you know, I ask audiences to swallow the spit in their mouth and most people have no problem with that. 
Um, then I say, okay, but how would, would it be different if I ask you to spit into a Dixie cup and then quickly redrink it? And then most people find that would be a little bit more disgusting, if not really disgusting. But then I ask, <laughs> yeah. well, what's the, you know what's the physical difference to swallowing spit in your mouth or swallowing spit you put in a Dixie cup and redrink? And and it's because there seems to be very little physical difference between those two acts, and yet there's this huge emotional uh, boundary that separates the two. And what it illustrates is the way these feelings of revulsion and disgust is a boundary monitoring psychology. The minute the spit leaves the boundary of the body, you don't want to reincorporate it. And so we use these feelings to create an affectional boundary. Anything perceived to be on the inside of this affectional circle. And like you said, it's usually my people, my tribe, mostly my family, and maybe extended family members and some very, very close friends. But these affectional tribes, um, there's all kinds of them, right? There's, yes, there's, there is an affectional boundary around your home, but then you have an affectional boundary, let's say around your, your faith community, mm-hmm. or you might have an affectional boundary around your neighborhood or your school or your country. So we have these affectional halos, these affectional boundaries and anybody on the inside of that that we consider a part of my people, my, my clan, my tribe, we treat them as the spit that's inside our mouth as something that is just a part of me. Mm-hmm. But anything on the outside of that, um, like spitting into Dixie cup is now treated with this hesitance to be welcomed back in. And that hesitance can be, you know, and it's greater on a continuum. It can just be a slight hesitation to say hello, um, to invite that person to lunch, to welcome them to the school district or to the neighborhood or to the country. Uh, and it can go all the way up to, you know, more extreme versions of hesitance. So from, to, you know, intolerance to hate and even to a geno- genocidal extermination of those people. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it all is rooted, it's all rooted in this perceiving the outsider as a source of contamination. And so like in America, that would be you know, refugees or Republicans or Democrats, depending on which side you fall on or, or Muslims. Yeah. 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 And I'm, I'm glad you, you know, cast it out politically because a lot of us like to believe that we're on the side that is the tolerant side, you know, like, well, of course, that's my uh, side. All, I have to be right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your side is the good side, and then everybody who disagrees is on the bad side. We all have people in our in our world that affectionately um, we struggle to welcome. Um, and so, if you're honest about it, again, just go back to social media and just watch your feelings, and yeah. you'll notice where you struggle to show hospitality. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, I want to. I want to use the rest of our time wiser. There's a handful of other questions that I wanted to touch on. One of them is personal sure. to me. So you talk about as you go and you speak to churches and you talk at conferences and, and do whatever else as, as people are engaging with you and this topic, that the one thing that you notice is that churches fear embracing death on the worship stage. And so to bring it home for me, I lead worship in my local church and and I read through that a little bit and and I'm still not sure where I sit with it. I'm not 100% certain that I understand it. So what do you mean 
by asking a church to embrace death? Well, so the, the what psychologists have discovered about disgust is that there's different kinds of it. And so obviously it's rooted in the food system, right? We, we push away disgusting things that we think are contaminated. And then we have been spending most of our time talking about what's called the social moral disgust, the way those feelings um, that we t- use to push away bad food is is – are, are used to push away bad people, right? So it's a moral, social kind of form of revulsion. But psychologists have also gone on to discover that disgust is also focused on pushing away reminders of uh, death and of our bodily vulnerabilities. And so uh, people feel uneasy or revolted by um, or uncomfortable around people who show physical deformities. They feel revulsion around death like around corpses or hospitals. And, and what, I, what I go on and talk about here is how those feelings of discomfort around people who display the vulnerabilities of the body, they remind us of our frail animal, uh, mortal nature, um, that our bodies and minds can fail us. And so these would be the homeless or the mentally ill or um, people with dementia or senior citizens or people with handicaps and disabilities. So anybody who kind of reminds us of the, of death. Um, and, and, and by that, I don't mean like, you know, you're, they're, you're afraid of death, but afraid of the, of our frailty and our failure mm-hmm. in our needing, in our neediness. Um, that what, what disgust does in that situation is it pushes out of public view these people who remind us of of our bodies and our frailty. So from the sick to the disabled to the mentally ill to the homeless, American culture does a really good job of pushing those people off the stage. Um, we, we, we tend to fetishize in America the talented, the youthful, the successful, and the, and the able. Um, and anybody who kind of violates that kind of Walt Disney veneer of perfection and talent and vigor and youthfulness um, is um, is uncomfortable. And so what happens, the worry I express in Stranger Guys is what happens is that when churches don't monitor kind of the implicit assumptions of the American success success ethos, um, we tend to just put on stage and to center our attention on um, the talented and the youthful uh, and the able. And so lots of churches are really kind of just shrines to youthfulness. Um, you know, so senior citizens are not given time or, or focus. Um, you know, often don't see disabilities on stage. Um, uh, mental illness is still very shameful and on and on it goes. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just about, and, and here's the thing. So it's not just about worship. Um, because what, what happens is you kind of become what you elevate. And so if you're always elevating success and usefulness and vigor, then as, as what happens is then people who struggle, people who have a mental illness or people who have experienced some sort of failure, uh, moral or otherwise, uh, they begin to hide um, because they're like, well, this is kind of what's going to get praised in this church. But for everything you're praising, there's often something that's hidden in the corner that you don't want to talk about. And and that might not be explicit. It's not like the church says that, 
but it becomes it's implicit in what you constantly kind of praise and worship. And so the, what we can have are churches with lots of people that um, hide from each other and are superficial because of intimacy, because usually what we're hiding from each other are failures. But if yeah. failures are shamed, if failures are shamed, then um, that, that leads to the hiding. Yeah, there. and so, you're hiding your openness as well. You're you're hiding your you're you're only giving people that outer layer of your onion, so no one ever gets to see or be with you. Yeah, being a you know, being a needy, vulnerable person is really shameful in America. Um, the, what's praised in America because of our success um, ethos and you know the kind of rugged individualism is self-sufficiency. Like America was built around a mythology of self-sufficiency, and what that what that means is you're not supposed to need anything. You are self-sufficient. So what that means is I don't need you. So I'm coming into church self-sufficient, which means I don't need anybody in this building. And again, I don't think anybody would consciously say that that's what they believe, but that's the way you're shaped in American culture to not need anybody. And so we're more than willing to serve other people. You know, like I can help you, but I'm fine. I don't need anything from you. And the point I try to make in Unclean and Stranger God is that when we're all self-sufficient, when nobody needs anybody in the building, then all of these relationships are really disposable. Huh. Um, and, and they're also really inauthentic because we actually really do need each other. We're just not admitting it. Um, yeah. And so consequently, love can't occur in, in a self-sufficient body. Love can't flow because nobody needs anybody. And um, love only flows when I have needs and you have needs and we begin sharing gifts back and forth to each other. There's a flow there of reciprocity and gift and grace. Um, so that that's kind of what I'm trying to get at there with the whole idea of disgust pushes away reminders of our neediness. Can we, as a as a church, as a people, as a as a culture, because I think you can love people whether or not you're Christian. I don't see how you cannot. But as, can we, as a people, solve the problem of being hospitable and welcoming and going to people with the slogan, like you'll see in most Southern Baptist churches, of well, we'll we'll and I'll give them a name. You know, we'll we'll love Elmo, but we hate that Elmo's gay. So we just we got to love on him until, but we, we got to hate what he's doing. Can you speak on that a bit? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I appreciate what the what the sentiment trying to do. It's trying to balance this tension that we were talking about earlier in the podcast between the Levitical call to purity and the prophetic call for justice and hospitality. You know, you're trying to balance mercy and sacrifice. So, you know, it's believed that you can do that by you know hating the behavior but loving the human being. My my point is. Um, and I, I kind of take a cue here from the theologian Miroslav Volf, and he talks about this thing called the will to embrace. And, and the will to embrace, as he defines it, is this recognition and acceptance of a person's worth and dignity prior to any other judgments we make about them. Before we sort people into gay or straight, Republican, Democrat, uh, progressive, evangelical, rich or poor, black or white, Muslim, Christian – you know, on and on it goes. 
before we sort people into their social grouping, these tribal groupings that we have all these feelings about, you have to have the will to embrace. You have to accept them in their humanity first. Because if you don't, if you see them through the social label, through the kind of tribal filter, you've already lost track of the humanity. And a process of dehumanization and demonization begins occurring. Subtly, it begins occurring. The seeds of hate are already sowed in your heart. Mm-hmm. And, that, and my point is, as a psychologist, is that is almost instantaneous. It's not like you're even deciding not to do it. You just do it. This is the social autopilot stuff. You, you are already emotionally reacting to a person once you hear that they are gay or once you hear that they're Republican or once you hear that they're a Democrat or once you hear that they're Muslim or they're in a different denomination than you. Like the minute you hear the social filter, you have feelings. And at that point, the game is probably almost always lost because once people are emotional, and I think we've all seen this, right? Once people are emotional, it's really hard to talk at that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Once I get angry, I think once anyone, and I, and I work at a bank and, and I deal with people and their money and nothing gets people more emotional quicker than you know their money or their religion or their kids. And I find it yeah. so hard to talk people off the ledge or I'll say something. I'm like, that's not what I said. I'm not insulting you. I'm not, you know, and, and but it's, I don't yeah. think, and I'm sure psychologically you could probably say, but we won't get into the science of it. I don't, I don't think that part of your brain even works once you become upset or fearful or whatever else is, is being released in your, in your, you know, your brain chemically when, when all that happens. So. No, no. And I, I, no, I think you're exactly right. I think that's you just really articulate what you just said. I think it, that's, it's, there's a part of your brain that engages and just kind of kicks out rationality. And, um, and that 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 dynamic that you just described is what Stranger God is trying to go after. That that when it plays out with social groups, um, but the, but so but to come back to the to the point about loving the sinner, hating the sin. My problem with that, as should be obvious now, is that you're you're framing the person in in light of their sin. They're yeah. just, you're just, you know you're they're seeing them as a sinner, and so some other sorting has occurred. Right. They are this center. And then and then you're and then you're trying to somehow rehabilitate their humanity in light of that judgment. And my point is that you got the order backwards. You have to embrace them in their humanity. Yeah. You, you might then go on and have a conversation about holiness. Um, and I, I want to be clear about it to, to conservative listeners, because they might think, well, this what are you talking about? Just love everybody. And don't care about the sin. And mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that. I'm I'm saying hospitality is uniquely focused on securing people's dignity and humanity. That like that's what its main practice. It's not acceptance of, you know, we're going to disagree politically about some things. Um, we're going to disagree about some moral things and even doctrinal things. So I get that, and I'm not I'm not saying that we don't ever have hard conversations, but those conversations can't be life-giving conversations. Unless the humanity of everybody at the table has been secured um, on the front end, and that's what is fails to happen. We're having conversations about politics, and we're having conversations about doctrine and sin without the will to embrace. And that's why we just yell at each other, and that's why the conversations become hateful and angry and, and dehumanizing for everybody on board. So yeah. hospitality is about embracing the dignity of the person across from the table, even though we might vehemently disagree about politics and morality. 
And I'd argue from, for at least my age demographic of millennial, I think that's why so many of us are, are evacuating the church, but are extremely spiritual still, just because we're tired of, of everybody bickering. But maybe that's just my, my personal reflection. I do want to, and so you, I, I don't want to give away the back third of the book uh, at all, but I did, you had two quotes in there and, and, and one, I want, I want to talk about both of those and that's, that's where I'd like to end for the day. Um, you speak on grace and you define it in a way that I've never heard preached, or maybe I just don't pay attention because my brain is, is tuned into what the next worship song is going to be. Uh, you speak <laughs> on, on, which happens more often than not. I have to listen to our own church's podcast to know what was said yesterday because I have no idea between my three kids and leading worship. I have no idea what the sermon was. You you speak on grace and how it's measured differently in the way that most churches assume that it is. And, and, and you talk about how the word means gift. And, and, and so I was hoping you could speak on that a bit. You talk about who's allowed to get it and who's not allowed to get it. And the difference in the way that Jesus and, and Paul talks about grace versus the way that we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is this is me summarizing um, work by a Paul scholar, uh, John Barclay, his book, Paul and the Gift. Yeah, grace just means gift in the ancient context. And Barclay makes two points. One is obvious and one is kind of a little bit more um, will be unique. And I think this is the part you're reacting to. So the first part of his point was that in the ancient context, um, gifts were given um, to, uh, by wealthy patrons to other kind of wealthy people or other kinds of um, people in different classes of society to um, secure their favor and their cooperation. It was a patronage gift economy. So you would give gifts so people could pay you back at some point. And so you gave gifts to uh, worthy participants, worthy recipients, I mean. And then Paul came along with this kind of revolutionary view of grace where he said, you know, God does something very different with God's gifts. God doesn't give his gifts to just the worthy. He gives them to the unworthy. He gives gifts to everybody regardless. And that was a big innovation. And it it was so innovative and so successful that now we kind of assume that was always the default of grace. Gifts were always supposed to be given to the unworthy. That's what makes that's what makes it grace. But that was a really big, crazy idea when Paul said that, when God, you know, that God gave his gifts indiscriminately to the unworthy, you know, Christ dies for us while we are yet sinners yeah. and we didn't deserve it. So that part of grace, we know very well. Um, but Barclay goes on to make a, his point. He goes, but Paul deployed that theology very differently than the way we deploy it. We deploy that message as an altar call. You don't deserve, right? You didn't deserve God's grace, but Jesus died for you anyway. So what's your response going to be? And then we make an altar call pitch. That is not how Paul used grace. Paul's big struggle in his churches was social. He was trying to get these um, very different groups of people to worship together. Um, He he was creating these really innovative communities where people who had never broken bread together were sitting down and trying to do life together. And so you often see this in the kind of the the Jew-Gentile distinction. So you see that in the first part of Galatians where, you know, the Jews were breaking bread with the Gentiles, and then Peter backs away from that fellowship, and so Paul confronts him. And so there's this honor-shame distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. And then you also see it in First Corinthians between the rich and the poor. 
and how the rich were not waiting for the poor at communion. And, and he tells them to wait for each other. So Paul's big fight in his churches was to how to get these social groups to welcome each other. And he deploys grace to make his argument. He basically says, listen, these honor-shame distinctions that you have imported from the world into the church have been eradicated by Jesus. He has given his gift to everybody indiscriminately. So therefore, because you have been welcomed, you welcome each other. And that is a very different view of grace because now we realize that grace isn't just about me and my private relationship with God. Grace isn't just about me and my salvation. Grace is about how I welcome my neighbor. Grace now has a social function and a social component. And so Paul used grace to, to create leverage for hospitality, not to create guilt for an altar call. But to welcome for Jew and Gentile to welcome each other, for rich and poor to welcome each other, for males and females to welcome each other. So in Galatians, when he says there's you know, neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, those distinctions were honor-shame distinctions. And Paul is using grace to eradicate the kind of honor-shame culture of his time to create a new social reality. And I think we struggle the same thing. America has its own honor shame codes. You know, we have our own classes of despised people and exalted people. This goes back to the worship stage, right? Mm -hmm. Even churches have their own honor shame codes. What gets honored, what gets applauded, what gets approved of, and what gets hidden. And and Paul would say, because God has given his grace to everybody in this space, that means everybody is welcome to this table. And so, um, yeah, grace is a social revolution. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tool to, to be more inclusive or to get rid of that social circle to, to reach out to, to other people. And, and I want to want to end on one final quote from, from the book, if that's okay. And then, and ask you the final question. Um, it's talking about just a minute ago, you know, grace is, a, is, is what God is using to make space for us. And, and there's a line that you use in the book, and I may say it wrong. This is from memory. It says that that we are somehow inside God, and that we exist solely because God is continually making room for us to be there. Um, which I think is that's just beautiful. That's just beautiful. Um, so with with grace in mind, with hospitality in mind, and with a, a cognitive reasoning of knowing that we're gonna be upset or disgusted, and then. How do we as a church proactively do this better? Um, to, to circle it all the way back to the very beginning of people would ask you, what are some things that we can do? Um, and so I would ask you the same question. For those listening, for, you know, for pastors listening or for deacons or anyone, um, what is something that we can do that would, that would become generative and, and would continue to be fulfilled daily? Yeah, well, to circle back to some stuff we talked about at the beginning, again, I don't think the problem is educational. So I don't think uh, more teaching on the Good Samaritan is going to do it. <laughs> I, think, I think we all know what, what the point of that story is. Mm-hmm. So I think what we got to grab, what we have to grab onto is, is uh, spiritual disciplines and practices. The way we change our hearts is through daily habitual practices. Um, and, and but we tend when we tend to talk about spiritual disciplines, we tend to focus on the vertical, right? Spiritual disciplines are about 
um, just prayer, me and God, Bible study, you know, fasting, contemplative retreats, you and God focusing on the vertical. What I argue in Stranger God is is that we're, there's a missing spirit. There's some missing spiritual practices, and I, and I argue that they are these spiritual practices. They're or spiritual disciplines of approach that focus on the horizontal interpersonal. So when, when we think about working on a relationship with God, very rarely do we think about approaching a person at my work who I would rather not invite to coffee, you know, like we'd rather work, we'd rather try to carve out time for more prayer time at work instead of saying, you know, you know, Julie or John or whoever that is, and I struggle with them. They're annoying. You know, I'm tend to be dismissive of them. Um, maybe my discipline is once a month to invite them to lunch, to, to pre- you know, to, to move, um, to take, to disengage the social autopilot and move towards. And so maybe it's somebody at work, maybe it's somebody in the neighborhood, maybe it's somebody who's sitting in a pew next to you. Um, maybe it's somebody that's one of these big, you know, maybe it's a refugee family that moved into town and volu- you know, starting to volunteer down at the refugees um, agency. Or for me, it was going out to a prison um, and then worshiping in a church with um, lots of poor and homeless people. Like wherever your triggers are, you, ha- you create habits and disciplines of moving towards those people. So, and I, and I think you're only limited here by your imagination. Um, but the discipline there is selecting and then approaching a, a person. So lots of people want hospitality to be this big welcoming initiative that the church launches. And I think those are great. Uh, don't get me wrong. Um, but to me, I just look at churches and say, there's somebody in your life right now that you can welcome. And I don't know where that is. I don't know if it's your next door neighbor. I don't know if it's your it could be your spouse at a point in your marriage. Hmm. It could be, um, you know, it could be that other mom in your kid's second grade class. It could be that father that stands on the sideline of your kid's soccer game. But it could be the refugee that moved into your town, or it could be the gay neighbor, or whatever. Like, we all have these triggers. It could be your Trump-supporting uncle or your Hillary-loving aunt. You know, there's somebody in your life that you have walled off from your affections. The practice of hospitality is being very intentional and moving towards those people with, a, with, with just simple acts of kindness. And I think the promise of the gospel is that when we do that, when we welcome the stranger in our lives, um, God will show up in, in ways that always surprise us. Mm. Amen. That could be that could almost be a prayer for the day. So thank you for that. That was beautiful. I want to take some time to direct people, and I would highly recommend anyone that hasn't or anyone that that likes what they've heard to to do go out and buy your book. And so they can obviously get that on Amazon and and most likely at the publisher as well. Um, where else would you direct people to engage in honest dialogue or uh, conversations about this type of topic? I know you have a blog, and 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 how else would you? Would you have people get engaged? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I blog every week, um, Monday through Friday at my blog, Experimental Theology. And I hope that, you know, people are like, oh, blogs are terrible. But I mean, I think I try to cu- cultivate a hospitable place on my blog. I mean, I have my own perspectives on things, but I try to be 
a welcoming person. So, mm-hmm. so they could definitely they could definitely find it there. But I think there's tons of places, you know, online that that you can engage. Um, uh, for example, like uh, I have an interest in um, obviously the you know the penal system in America, and so there's always podcasts and. Um, things that you can follow, like there's one um, come out of San Quentin prison called Ear Hustle that I really like. That just just lets you kind of in the world of what it's like to live inside a prison. So I, I think what I would recommend people to do is that if they have a passion for something, um, to find locations on social media where they can learn more about and reach out and listen to people who are very different from them and um, sensitize themselves to their world and their struggles. Um, and that kind of can widen your own personal horizons. Good, good. Well, I think that's a good start to, to end for the day. So, Dr. Beck, thank you so much, so, so much for, for coming on. I know we've, we're all busy this time of year, and I, I, am, I am grateful for your time. Hey, I think it's an important conversation, so I'm glad to talk about it. Thank you so much to everyone uh, that listened today, to everyone that has supported us in any way be it Twitter, Facebook, the iTunes reviews, uh, both the negative and the positive ones. Any feedback is so helpful. Uh, To those of you that have donated in any amount, I can't tell you how much that helps. Those funds help to make all of this happen. 